If you'll turn in your Bibles back to the book of Psalms, we had such a wonderful time this morning in Psalm 81, and I want us to complete a wonderful day in the Psalms yet again by looking at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. We are simply working our way through these psalms as a congregation. As I said this morning, these are the songs of Israel. This is the song book of the redeemed. And all of these songs, of course, are rich with theology, packed with encouragement. They are filled with admonishment, and yet they are so glorious because these songs, like no other songs except those in the Bible, are inspired. We are, or I think I should say except those outside the Bible, huh? Uh, are non-inspired, and these are. These are the inspired words of God, and Psalm 82 is no exception. Here's what it says, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Selah. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now this is a relatively short psalm, but it is nevertheless packed with vital truth about how God assesses and judges all the judges of the earth. Have you ever wondered in your mind and your heart, especially if you've seen, for instance, a television program or perhaps even been a witness yourself in a courtroom scene where clearly, at least in your mind, injustice had been done? Spurious claims from false witnesses, perhaps even a judge who as I saw one recently who was uh, taking a nap there on the bench. An older gentleman who was pressed into service and who they had to wake up so that he could continue to listen. Things like that happen all over the world, of course. We definitely need to affirm good judges, righteous judges, judges who judge with great equity and great truth and what we call, of course, in our country, the rule of law. But not everyone is like that, are they? And this psalm really 
fits what God is as judge and what he will do to judges. How does he do this? Well, Psalm 82 is going to tell us exactly how and why. And while I want to try to define who verse 1 here says are the gods that he, Yahweh, holds in judgment, I first want to set up how the whole of this psalm is laid out. And it is definitely, isn't it, a courtroom scene. And Yahweh himself is bringing the judge himself into the courtroom. Imagine the scene. Maybe you're a witness there. Maybe you're just a spectator. And if you've been in a courtroom before, you walk in the back. Usually these are these old and uh, wooden places where much heritage is found. You walk in and you take your seat, perhaps even in the back if you're not involved in the case itself, and uh, you walk through a little bit of a uh, slighted passageway, and you maybe sit on a couple of chairs where maybe you're uh, a part of the prosecution or maybe a part of the defense. And as you look forward, you might see on the right side of the picture in your mind uh, a number of other chairs, chairs that are grouped possibly in, in 12, and that's what is commonly called the jury box. And then as you look to the right of the jury box and a little bit ahead and you see a taller and more august bench where the judge himself sits. And you might even see a a bailiff, a, a person who's on duty to make sure that everything runs as smoothly as it needs to. And then, of course, when the courtroom is filled with people and when the Proceedings are in session, and as they begin, usually after everyone is seated, the judge enters the courtroom, and what do the people do? That's because the bailiff says, all rise, because this august, respected, touted judge who comes in his robe and with his gavel sits on the bench wraps the gavel on his table and says, let's begin. Court is in session. My friends, that's precisely what's happening here in Psalm 82. But this isn't any normal judge. This is the judge of all the earth. This is the judge of all judges. This is the king of kings and lord of lords, and we... We read about him in Revelation 19 for our scripture reading. And this is, this is Yahweh God. And this scene is evoking in our minds perhaps even the time of the end. This is the adjudication of the ages where the people who are coming through those sliding doors and sitting down wherever they may be seated are actually on trial who are and have been themselves actual judges on this earth. And it's time for them to receive their examination for how they judged, 
How did they do? How did they adjudicate their courtroom? I mean, it's one thing for a judge to receive the, uh, the regal affirmation of those in a courtroom because of his person, because of his prowess, because of his knowledge, because of his respect, because of his years on the bench, because of his study, because of his authority. You would assume all the judges of the earth would stand before this judge ready to be judged. But it isn't so. It isn't so for many. This is going to be a time for unjust judges to get their comeuppance. And this is exactly what Psalm 82 is all about. Look at that outline point, that first one, number one. Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, approaches the divine bench to judge all judges. Verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. Now notice that's C-O-U-N-C-I-L. Not someone who's giving counsel to another, that's S-E-L. This divine counsel is the place where God is standing the whole time. He's not the judge with the regal robe who's actually sitting down. He's the judge who's standing up. He's there to judge. He's there to judge the judges. In the midst of the gods, small g, he holds judgment. That's what verse 1 says. Now, who is this who's being judged? Well, it says in the latter part of verse 1, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Who are these gods? Gods in the plural. Now, it is a small g, of course, in our translation, but who are these? Who, Who is this who's being judged? But one of the things you have to do when you teach the Bible is to try to determine for your people what's the best interpretation here. And there are several that are offered, three primary ones, I think, three major but very different interpretations which have been suggested for who these gods that Yahweh will hold judgment over. Here's the first interpretation. One of them, one of those interpretations is a view that sees these so-called gods as various pagan deities. And that might make sense, right? If, if God, the judge of all the earth, is going to judge judges, uh, gods as it were, maybe what this psalm is all about is that Yahweh as the only God, remember this morning, the only true and living God, maybe these are pagan or supposed pagan deities. Uh, would-be gods. That's why it's small g. There aren't any other gods. The Apostle Paul says that. There, there really aren't other gods. We might call them gods, but we know that if they're not the true God, Yahweh God, then they're not really gods at all. They're, they're made up. They're fake. They're phony. Maybe this is who it's talking about here, various pagan deities who, as at least the people perceive, are misjudging 
and wickedly ruling and therefore hurting those who stand before them. Maybe that's what it is. And of course, you've heard this undoubtedly. Even if you looked at the first century of the New Testament and you find in in pagan territories and Gentile areas, maybe like Thessalonica, that book of the Bible that we're studying now, First and Second Thessalonians, and these pagans were worshipers of a multiplicity of gods, plurality of gods, and all of these gods had a name, and all of these names were representative of how powerful that God was in that particular area. And so then you would pay obeisance and loyalty to that God. Uh, maybe you flagellated yourself, you sort of cut yourself up, or maybe you went to the temple and you threw some money at this God who had been physically constructed up there in the air of the building, and perhaps you did something else. You might have gotten on your knees, and uh, maybe you had uh, walked on your knees, as it were, to, to get them good and bloody because you wanted to show the pagan deity how sincere you were and how motivated you were to, to bow before him him or her, could be some kind of pagan deities like these that's being referred to here. Well, there's another interpretation that has it that these aren't wicked pagan rulers whom Yahweh has judged as unfit in their pronouncement of various judgments, but maybe are not made up pagan deities, but actually angels. Angels, yes. Angels, sometimes in the Bible, and the reason why this interpretation is, is, uh, is uh, popular is because sometimes in the Bible, there's a reference to the sons of God, referring to angels, sons of God, means presumably that these angels are actually behind the scenes and somewhat invisibly ruling the world. You remember in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, there's a reference to the idea of the spiritual battle in the cosmos where where God and Satan are always against each other, always warring against one another. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that there are these principalities and powers, and that is undoubtedly a reference to even those evil angels who try, in fact, to judge the world. They want control. The Bible even says that Satan himself is the God of this world, right? Now, we know that Satan is not a God in the sense of Yahweh God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not any of those things in terms of a true and lasting and eternal deity. In fact, he's not a deity at all, is he? He's an angel. He's a bad angel, but he's an angel. And by the way, his name is not Lucifer. That's not in the Bible. That's a mistranslation in the book of Isaiah by the King James Version, to which then that becomes sort of a lore. No such name ascribed to him. He has no personal name. He's just the devil, Diabolos, Satan. We read about him in Revelation 19, didn't we? That old serpent. And uh, he has minions. He has followers, those angels who fell with him. Perhaps one-third of all the angels that God created, possibly. Book of Revelation 
might be alluding to that. And there are certainly both evil angels and good angels who in the cosmos, unbeknownst to us in large measure, who are at war with one another. We don't see it. We often don't perceive it. But there are galactic battles that happen in the spheres that are above us, beyond us, in which there are battles ensuing. And perhaps, maybe these are the kinds of gods with which Yahweh is holding some judgment for the great day. The Bible even says in Jude that there are some of those bad angels, those demons we could call them, who are in chains and uh, Second Peter refers to them and other places where some of these uh, angels or these demons, as we would want to call them, are even in chains to this day. But some of them are very active. And what are they active in doing? Are they flying around, flittering, taking joy rides? No. They're attempting in the cosmos and how they could do so in our world to deceive. And perhaps some of them infiltrate the very bowels of human governments. Maybe that's who this is referring to. So-called, as I said, principalities in power that have abdicated their roles as needing to keep righteousness and justice in the world and are now turning justice upon its very head and therefore they need to be judged by the judge, capital J, for such unrighteousness and lawlessness. And by the way, even if this isn't the right interpretation of this psalm, Psalm 82, everything I just said, God knows, he's in charge of, and he will be adjudicating on the final day. But there's a third interpretation, and I think this is probably what is going on here. I personally think this is the best of the three, and it is these gods who Yahweh holds in judgment, and I believe them to be some of the very human judges of the world, human judges. Not pagan deities, not angels, but actual human judges. And possibly, my friends, even what might most be involved with here as these judges are referenced are some of the judges of very Israel itself. And the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, is not pleased. He's not pleased about their judgments. I don't think this is limited to only Jewish judges or Israelite judges who are perverting justice and miscarrying justice and who are going to be judged by the judge of all the earth one day, but certainly because this is the songbook of Israel and because Yahweh is the leader of Israel, the ultimate leader, he also at times will in fact, with a psalm like this, bring a very firm adjudicating word about his own people and the judges over them. So I think they might be majorly in view here. Why do I say that? Because 
there are a myriad of passages. We'll look at a few of them. There are many more that we won't have time to read. But if you read your Old Testament for any length of time, you will read not just in the the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, but all through both the law, the, the writings, and the prophets, that God has a lot to say about the perversion of justice, a great deal to say. In fact, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. If you want to see why I think this is the better interpretation here, I think it is because there are so many passages in the Bible where God makes it very clear, this is how you are to be a righteous, just judge. And when they aren't, it's because he's given them so much instruction, so much information, so many laws, so many statutes that I don't think he is up in the heavens wringing his hands, not knowing what to do with them. I think this is a psalm about them. Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is, this is how Israel is supposed to have laws about how they interact with one another and how they treat one another and what the laws say they can and can't do. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. That's a very important phrase. His master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, a tool, and he shall be his slave forever. In other words, he's marked. He's marked as the slave of that particular master. And this is that slave who wants to do so. But notice that phrase again. That phrase that I said was a very important phrase. Do you see it there in verse 5? Slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. In other words, I'm going to stay in my slavery. Then his master shall bring him to God. Bring him to God. If you're a human being, how do you bring your master to God? I mean, do you just stand in a field and wait until God brings himself in some form and you stand before the God of the universe in the field with your slave and the master is somehow waiting for this God to appear in some form? No. Here's the easy answer. He goes before a judge before a judge. This is a legal proceeding. So who's the representative of God? That judge. But it's so important, and he's such a representative of God, that when you go before such a one, he is God-like to you. He represents God. He's going to adjudicate whether or not this transaction has happened in a way that is acceptable and legal And in this case, very wonderful. The master says, I make a good, I make a I have a good slave, and the slave says, I make a good living. I want to stay here. This is like uh, 
work for me. This is my job. This is my life. This is my lifestyle. And I want to make it permanent. I want to make it legal. And how do you make it legal? Well, that all, that tool, through the ear, prints, bonds, marks that we have a relationship. And how do you, how do you make the relationship? Is it a handshake? Well, it could be. Is it a document? Well, it could be. Is it a stamp of approval? It could be. Is it a contract? It could be. It doesn't say exactly what that is, but it does say this. You're going to come before God. That's God's judges. Think about that now. If you're a judge, and if you want the rule of law to be kept, and you get educated, and you sit on the bench, and you know that people are going to come before you, and you have a sense of righteousness about yourself, and you want to represent the God of all the earth, you best be saying about yourself, if I'm representing him, I'd better be righteous. I'd better be the man of my word. I better have integrity. I better not be bribed. I better not do anything that besmirches the name of my ultimate judge, my God. I think that's what's happening here. Look at Exodus chapter 22. This is the same phraseology. Exodus 22, verse 8. Verse 8. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. In other words, I found it. The case of both parties shall come before whom? God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Well, how does that happen? How does that that adjudication happen? Well, it happens because there's a judge who's the representative of God on the earth. He's representing God. Yes, he's representing righteousness and justice and the rule of law. Yes, he is. But he's also representing the divine judge. He's judging in the stead of the divine judge. That's what it means. That's what it's talking about. Look at chapter 23 of Exodus, chapter 23. This is, this is a part of the, the legal book of Israel. Chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your, to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Now, this is judge's instructions. And do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Of course, this is for all of Israel, but this is most certainly for a judge who is to judge rightly with equitable and clear and impartial decisions. You ever think uh, you would one day be standing before a judge? I've been recently doing so. Don't, don't get worried. It's been things regarding my family. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had to stand before a judge. Now, in these days, it was in a Zoom context, but it was a judge in Dallas, Texas. My sister had died, and she had a house 
and she wrote out her will longhand, signed her name. And her daughter, my niece, was called upon to take care of the family interests, including that house. And so she had to contact a lawyer, and a lawyer had to then go to work in terms of knowing what he needed to do to make sure that all the paperwork was in order so that when it came time to talk before the judge, it could be determined somehow and in some way by non-fraudulent means that this particular will in that person's own handwriting who owns such a house was in fact the owner and that is in fact that person's signature and in fact this home could now be sold and the proceeds go to others. And so you need witnesses. So I was called and I was told you are her surviving brother and so you need to raise your right hand. And you need to say, I solemnly declare I will tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Which of course you and I find quite amusing when we say something like that because normally the people who are asking us to affirm that oath, are themselves godless people. So I did what I was supposed to do, and the judge asked me a series of questions. Are you the brother of Penny Quinn? Yes, I am. And how long have you known Penny Quinn? Well, 60-plus years. And do you believe that this is the authentic signature of Penny Quinn? Yes, I do. Have you recognized that signature before? Yes, I have. Series of questions like that. Now, let's say that there was a situation in which there was an unjust judge. And perhaps that judge had worked something out with an unjust attorney. And let's say that they went through all of those motions to be able to classify, to adjudicate, to declare that that was in fact the home of my sister. And then they said, you may sell that home and the proceeds of that home must be in such and such an amount of money as the uh, market will allow. And let's say that that attorney who was representing or supposed to be representing the persons who are the family members who might have some level of profit from the sale of that home receive only a portion of the sale of that home because the attorney says, well, you see, you have to understand that uh, there are some charges and some extra fees, and the judge has indicated that uh, uh, $25,000 of those proceeds uh, must be given to the court. And they say, oh, you mean like court fees? Uh, well, yes, in a, in a, in a way. And just so happens that in the back room, the attorney and the judge, in one of a thousand cases, split that money and put that money in their pocket. You think, well, that's, that's absurd. Quite to the contrary. It probably happens far more than we think. And sad would that be. And I think that's what's going on here. God, the judge, is looking at these who are supposed to be keeping the rules and judging with impartial means, and they're doing just the opposite. 
Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, there are ways and means that God knows because of the heart of man, because of the sinfulness of man, even those who are supposed to be respectable like judges. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. In other words, don't just hear the great and rule in their favor because you think as a judge there's something in it for you. Judge the great and the small just alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is whose? God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. That's just one example. We could look at Deuteronomy 10 and chapter 16 and chapter 27. We could look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. We could look at Jeremiah 22, verses 1 to 9. I mean, the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is replete with constant advice, constant commands, constant warnings about the miscarriage of justice, which implies what? That miscarriage of justice will often happen. Very unjust judges. Now, if you're an attorney or a judge in the room tonight, be encouraged. You're in a room in which you're here because you want to be righteous. Thank God for them. Thank God for righteous judges. Righteous are those in legal professions whose God is the Lord. But they're not all like that, are they? So these judges were called gods because they stood as the very representatives of the true God. And if you're going to be a representative of the true God, you better adjudicate like Him. You say, well, how could I do that? That's such a lofty standard. I can tell you how to do it. Read your Old Testament. Read it. Write it down. Mark it up. Do you imagine, would you imagine what our country would be like if the rule of law was the Old Testament? The Old and New Testaments? The rule of law. We're going we're gonna to judge according to Scripture. I would think our country would be vastly different. So this is what's happening, and, and this, this divine judge, this judge of all judges, has been standing at the bench with his gavel to deal out his counsel, that is, the counsel of righteousness. Who's righteous? Can you imagine? Let's say there were 5,000 judges, no, 500,000, no, 5 million Judges, standing in rapt attention, and the divine judge is saying, next, next. And because he is omniscient and because he is omnipotent, he says, I know everything you did, everything you said, and every adjudication you made. Wow. And sadly, my friends, in verses 2 through 5, Yahweh indicts all the perverted judges and all their injustices. 
Look at verses 2 through 5. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Even that that liturgical or musical term, that term maybe of an interlude is necessary here. Selah. It's as though the psalmist is saying, pause. Have you been partial to the wicked? Have you not been giving justice to the weak and the fatherless? Have you not been maintaining, verse 3, the right of the afflicted and the destitute? Notice the verbs in verse 4. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Back in verse 3, give justice. See those verbs? Give justice. Maintain the right of the afflicted. Rescue, deliver. Verse 5, they have neither mean. What is knowledge nor understanding? They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. What does that mean? What does verse 5 mean? Well, it's, it's got to be only one of two things. Here's one. It's actually talking about the judges themselves. They have no knowledge. They have no understanding. They walk about in darkness. The foundations of the earth are shaken because they are evil and wicked. These judges aren't representing the right and righteous foundations of the earth. It's exactly the opposite. No wonder the earth is shaking. And when they should have knowledge and when they should have right understanding, they walk about in darkness. Now, does that not give you a sense of the definition of unjust judges? They're in the dark. They're not following God. They're not obeying Yahweh. They're not doing what He says. They're not following the rules of the law book. I just read you a few of those from Exodus and Deuteronomy, and I mentioned Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets, and and it's all there. They're all supposed to do it. They're all supposed to be adjudicating rightly. They're all supposed to be just, and they're supposed to judge with equity and fairness. And instead, it's the total opposite. It's the total opposite. Or maybe if it's not that, maybe... Verse 5 means something like this. It's not talking about the judges. It's talking about those people who are listed in verses 3 and 4. The weak and the fatherless and the afflicted and the destitute and the weak and the needy. They're the ones who are saying, can I get any judge with the kind of knowledge and understanding that I myself need because I don't know? I don't have the understanding of law. It's as though, as in my weak and needy condition, as a person who needs help, I'm in the dark. It's it's darkness to me. I I don't know the rule of law. I I think what's happened to me is wrong. I, I think what's gone on in my life by that unjust person in my life who extorted money from me. And, of course, you and I can hear the weak and the needy saying, you know, I got a call the other day, and it was a person who said, I represent the tax people of your country called the IRS. Anybody ever receive that call? And they say, 
Madam, you must pay up or you will be going to jail in three days. And just think about an unsuspecting older person at their home. Oh, my. Well, what, what happened? I, 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 thought I, I thought I paid my, my taxes this year. and Oh, no, ma'am. You, you must have forgotten. And so if you, if you give me your bank account number and that routing number that goes along with it, all of this will go away. There'll be, there'll be no worries. You know the hottest hell is designed for some of these people who are fleecing the flock, treating especially older persons and weak persons and maybe infirm persons and maybe the mentally unstable persons. And even, not just the unsuspecting, but those who are trying to do the right thing and maybe a a mother with children who can't find a way to get them fed and she gets desperate and, and she does everything she can to work and she hopes that maybe the money that she's earned is enough but doesn't ever seem to be enough. And so someone calls them and talks to them and maybe someone comes by and says, oh, do I have a get-rich-quick scheme for you? Of course, not by that name, by another name. Let's walk down Shangri-La together. I've got a plan. She's desperate. She's the weak. She's the needy. She's the afflicted. She's the destitute. And so she says, well, what can we do? How Can we work a deal? Can, can I get a little bit more? Can I scratch enough? Can I, can I gain something? Oh, yes, we'll help you. We'll be right there. She's saying, I, I don't know. I don't have understanding. I'm, I'm in the dark about how to have more money or about, about this deal. And, and the foundations of the earth seem to be shaking to me. That's what's going on. How long will you judge unjustly, Yahweh says? How long will you do this to these people? And by the way, doesn't it say right there at the beginning of verse 2, don't show partiality to the wicked? You know in your New Testaments, you've got a couple places where partiality is seen as a very serious Sin. You remember James chapter 2? James chapter 2, my brothers, James 2 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't show any partiality, being partial to someone, usually for what you yourself can get out of the deal. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or or sit down at my feet. In other words, you're not even worthy to, to be in my presence, so just sit over there by my feet. And have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Oh, dear, judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, why? Because it's easy dishonor to the poor man, because he's poor, he's defenseless. It's easy to fleece the older lady who's not quite thinking clearly. It's easy to 
look at those who are down and discouraged and disconsolate. And how about even in churches? Yes, even in churches. 1 Timothy chapter 5. You know how sometimes even churches, local churches, could have men in their midst who are sinning, and they're sinning in such a way that they need to be removed as an elder, but the fellow elders won't do it? That's called partiality. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders rule well, those who are considered worthy of double honor. Why? Because especially those, it is those who are laboring in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, if your preacher is a good preacher, and he's working hard, and he's doing the right thing, and he preaches the right doctrine, and he's a man of integrity, pay him and pay him double, because he needs to be paid double for his double honor. He needs to be considered worthy because he's laboring and preaching and teaching. But then notice, it says in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or the basis of two or three witnesses. But then verse 20 seems to indicate that there are going to be some elders in some cases and in some places who persist in sin. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from what? Partiality. No wonder it says in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, that is, to affirm someone to serve as an elder, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, don't be, don't be partial toward an elder. You say, well, how could that be? Well, perhaps you're intimidated by him. His position, his power, his title. Perhaps you're saying, well, you know, I mean, who, who am I? I'm not an elder. I should probably keep my mouth shut. It's uh, probably going to be too uh, controversial, too intimidating. And maybe that even happens on uh, elder councils. Maybe there's a rogue elder, but nobody wants to deal with him because of the backlash. So you go and you deal with somebody in the church who's sinning and, and unrepentant, and you bring them through the first and second and third and fourth parts of the church discipline as outlined in Matthew 18, and you're doing that with somebody in the congregation, and yet that elder is sinning, and no other elder is bringing him to task. Yes, and you have to do it with the basis of two or three witnesses for sure, but if he persists in sin, you have to treat him just like you would treat anybody else, and if he is to be brought before the congregation, it's better for that because if he's rebuked in the presence of all, all may fear sinning. Watch out for partiality. And if that's true in the church, how should that also be so very true in the courtroom? A lot of weak, a lot of destitute, a lot of needy people there. If you've got a rogue judge, this is a bad, bad situation. No wonder the Bible says repeatedly, defend the destitute, defend the widow and the orphan. They don't have any representation I mean, 
Yeah, there are a lot of people in the dark. There are a lot of people who are clueless. There are a lot of people that don't know as much as judges know and know as much as attorneys know and know, know as much as pastors know and know as much as elders know. Don't be partial to them. In fact, if anything, if God has a sweet spot in his heart, it's for the widows and the orphans. And of course, he's got perfect sweetness in his heart for all of those, but especially for those who are downtrodden and beaten and have no help or hope unless you do it for them. Verses 6 and 7. This is most interesting. Yahweh sentences with the guilty verdict all unjust judges as charged, as indicted. You know what an indictment means? That means you are brought up on charges. You're indicted. Here's the list of sins, failures, law-breaking, criminal conduct. Here's the list. You are indicted. You're charged with these crimes, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And Yahweh says, I adjudicate you with guilt as charged. Verses 6 and 7. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. What does he mean? I mean, verse 6 is amazing. It just flat out says that human beings, human judges, that's the right interpretation, and I think it is, you, you are gods. Again, small g, but you're gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you, it says. That's going back to those verses that I read in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You're, you're representative of God on the earth. That's what preachers are, right? Standing in this pulpit. I'm supposed to be rightly representing the Word of God. I'm supposed to be representing this is what God says. These are God's words. This is God's written revelation. You must follow it. Eternity hangs in the balance. Those are, those are sacred words. Those are solemn words. Well, should it be no less in the courtroom? These people are representing God himself. So I have no problem with this saying, you're God's. You're representatives of that God. In fact, sons of the Most High Himself, all of you, it says. You know, this is a most interesting verse. Because the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself quotes it. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is, this is amazing. The Gospel of John is a book that in several places... Jesus is recorded as making the claim that he is God in human flesh, that he's one with the Father. There's a claim to deity. And in verse 31 of John chapter 10, it says this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Because Jesus said in the previous verse, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then this phrase, verse 30, I and the Father are one. They knew exactly what he meant. I and the Father are on, on, on an equal level par. Now that's audacious. 
No wonder the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what he was saying. And Jesus had a very interesting answer. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, it is not Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's right out of Psalm 82.6, our very psalm and our very verse. Verse 35, he explains it. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, Psalm 82 is the word of God. And it cannot be broken. It cannot be annulled. Verse 36, do you say of him, speaking about himself, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Just throw me aside. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Jesus is saying, look, if if the Jewish scriptures, if the Hebrew scriptures are saying you are gods, then why would you have a problem with me saying I am the Son of God? I am the Son of the Most High. And the answer is, you should have no problem at all with this, because I am not just a representative like one of those judges, one of those gods, one of those sons of the Most High. I am the Son of the Most High. Now, that's an interesting refutation from the Son of God using Psalm 82.6 to obliterate their claim that he's committing blasphemy. He is most certainly not doing so because he is God. It's amazing. This is is a claim, and he's using such a claim, and he's saying, you don't even know your own scriptures. You don't even know that he says here in verse 6, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And, of course, we know in verse 6 because of verse 7 in our text Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. There's the big difference. Jesus is divine, perfect, eternal. That's the Son of God. And what about these? Well, these are men, human beings. Though they are called gods, small g and plural, sons of the Most High, yes, they are representatives of God, And if they were the legitimate representatives of God, then they should be representing God in their judging, right? And they don't. They absolutely do not. And because of that, he says, you shall die. That's the sentencing. sentencing. And fall like any prince. You know, there might be those princes, kings, those in high lofty positions who would say, well, I'm not going to die like all of those peasants. And here's the answer. Like men, like Adam, 
like all men, you shall die, and you'll fall like any prince. There's not levels of those who were the hoity-toities of the world. Those who had all the money and all the power and all the prestige, as though they don't really die, or they don't die badly, or they don't die by dying. No, everybody dies. And if you're an unjust judge, you're going to die, and you're going to be judged. And that's our final verse. Yahweh arises. He rises from the divine bench, and he takes his position, and he takes his possession as the only true and righteous judge and king over all the earth. Look at verse 8. Arise, O God. That's the plea. That's Israel's plea. That's why I think it's, it's Israelite judges. Because they've seen so much graft and so much corruption and so much miscarriage of justice and so much of a complete ignorance of the law book of Israel about how to judge, or maybe they know how to judge and they refuse to do it, and they're living high on the hog, and these are judges who are going to be dealt with, and no, no wonder the song is this, Arise! They're singing this. They're singing the song. Arise, O God, judge the earth. In other words, Lord, please do it now. And if you were in that case, if you were in that situation, and you were being dealt with unjustly, wouldn't you want to be saying, O God, arise. Would you do it now? Please. I'm hurting. They've taken all my money. I can't pay my bills. I can't live. I don't have a home. I don't have food. My my kids are near death. Arise. Judge the earth. Looking forward, for you shall inherit all the nations. You know what that means? He's in charge. And everything is his. He's going to inherit it, which means he's going to possess it all because he is the judge and he will rise That's the answer. Arise, O God, judge of the earth. You shall. You shall. What does that mean? It means this. The judge of all the earth, Genesis 18.25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right. And he will. All wrongs will be righted. All wrongs. Not one in the history of the world will remain wrong forever. All wrongs will be dealt with. All issues will will be fixed. All injustices will be recompensed by the almighty judge of all the universe. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is. Do you know that there are people, and you might even know them yourselves, who have been dealt with so treacherously by some unjust lawyer, judge in a courtroom or in a scam or in some kind of situation, a business deal, whatever it is, And perhaps maybe even they didn't see in their own lifetime an adjudication of righteousness for such a thing. Wouldn't you be tempted, even on your deathbed, to say, I never got my money back. I I never got my son back. I got swindled out of this, and it seems like God never, ever fixed it. And this is saying, all of the nations of the earth will be his possession. If it's not in this life that you will get 
the recompense against the wicked who did that on you, against you, it will happen in eternity. Don't worry. Arise, oh God, judge the earth, and he will. Sometimes he does it right then and there, and he's dealt. Sometimes that judge is taken right out of that bench, and he's stripped of his robe, and he's dealt with forthwith. And sometimes you and I look in horror because we say, why is he still up there? He's corrupt. We know it. God has a plan. Sometimes we don't know what the plan is, but he's got a plan. And when he has a plan, he will execute the plan. It may even be in the next life, but he will execute the plan. This is such an encouraging psalm. Why? Because in the end, only true righteousness and holiness will be vindicated by the judge and king of the earth, the whole earth, who will take possession, who will inherit the whole world in which righteousness will dwell. That's why I want to be a part of the millennial kingdom. That's why I want to be a part of what God's going to do to vanquish all his foes. And then I can't wait after that because there's even going to be a time that's going to be greater even than the millennial kingdom, and that's the eternal state where all sin is vanished and only righteousness dwells upon the earth. Boy, I want that day. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is a, this is a great psalm. It's a great psalm of deliverance. We know that not everybody assumes or believes or will see the, the deliverance sometime in this life. Maybe they won't. Their possessions, their, their money has been taken from them, their family, maybe even their own life. Maybe martyrs will die by the sword. Maybe that righteousness seems to be so elusive to them. But all unrighteousness will be dealt with. All foes will be vanquished. All wrongs will be righted. All matters will have their resolve by the judge of all the earth. He will do what is right. If not in this life, in the life to come. Father, thank you for being that kind of judge. And thank you for judging our sin not by our merits or by our work or by our resolve because none of that would ever be enough. Thank you that you judge us in and through the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus. He died for us. And we are in his eternal debt. It is he who will be the judge who comes. And he will deal out retribution on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. And I pray there's no one here tonight who has not received and embraced the gospel of Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his soon coming return. Find your, yourself hidden in Christ. When the judge of all the earth comes onto the scene to right every wrong. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for the Psalms. They, they recalibrate our minds because we, 
walk in this filthy world and we, we wonder, we ask questions. We see so, so much turmoil and graft and corruption and treacherousness and we, we find ourselves asking, when is this ever going to stop and where is God and why isn't the world being righted by the Son of God? When shall He come? And the answer will be, in His time and in His way. And we are called upon to trust and to pray and to hope and to believe that that day will come and it will. May we be found faithful when we come to stand before the judge of all the earth. Lord, we pray that there would be unjust judges who would be removed from the bench. Yahweh, arise. Judge the earth. And thank you for being the judge that you are, holy and righteous, loving and gracious. May it be so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.